0: Even when it comes to euthanasia training, we always advocate that new personnel or those who might not be as skilled in that area do have mentors and they watch and they see what a quality euthanasia is all about.
1: When the patient has passed in euthanasia, is the hardest work done? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VedEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today I talk again to Dr. Kathleen Cooney with the Companion Animal Euthanasia Training Academy. In our last exciting episode, Dr. Cooney laid out a ton of thinking and best practices about work before and during euthanasias to make them better for staff, patients, and clients. And today, we delve into the crucial elements of aftercare. When the deed is done, this is what it's crucial to do. Okay, so you are my second returning podcast guest, and we've just barely released it. I'm super happy. I love returning to topics again to dig into them again. So I appreciate making the time.
0: Absolutely. What an honor. Thank you.
1: Last time we kind of looked at a lot of euthanasia and then there was one part that was left off. There's so much that goes into thinking about euthanasia beforehand and then working with the client, working with the team, working with the particular patient, whether it's going to happen at home or in the clinic. And then the euthanasia has been performed. And I feel like the tough medical stuff is now done. And so I don't know, is there a tendency sometimes to breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, the hard part's done. And is that appropriate
0: to think? You know, it is appropriate to think, especially if there was a lot of emotional weight around the appointment, which there usually is. You know, everybody can breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that the pet had a peaceful passing, that the clients or the caregivers, you know, wishes were met and everything went as smooth as possible. Everybody should feel good about a successful euthanasia. And then the added work and efforts going forward from there is to make sure that all of the aftercare wishes are in order for that pet's body and and what's going to happen from that point forward.
1: So having gone into practices and talked to people about their procedures, how often do you think places really have a rock solid aftercare procedure set in place so that everyone knows what they do? If it was a short appointment, a long appointment, it was tough. Now it's done. Does everybody really know everything that's supposed to happen after? And does it go off like clockwork or are there hitches inside that process in the practice or in a person's home?
0: Yeah, so I don't necessarily have a, a good percentage for you of how many are doing it right. <laughs> right. I can say that you know groups, for example, that have gone through like AHA accreditation and have standard operating procedures in place, maybe that have taken our, our CADA training, the Companion Animal Euthanasia Training Academy's new uh-huh. harmony program, they're more likely to be Dotting their I's and crossing their T's and all the details that need to be met with aftercare, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those who haven't gone through extra training and, and comprehension aren't doing it well. So it also depends on who within the team is going to be doing this work. You know, with all the different departments within a hospital, there's going to be those personnel that are assigned to this work, like such as you know placing the pet in the designated cadaver bag or wrapping it in a shroud getting the body ready if you will for aftercare then filling out the labels the ID tags contacting the aftercare facilities there's also probably going to be designated staff who are in charge of putting together the sympathy cards and or making memorialization items and so on so some of the hospital will likely be involved Many hospitals will also have, you know, again, a lot of personnel trained across the departments. And why that's important is because death touches usually every aspect of the hospital in one way or another, because death is so common in veterinary medicine. So it's important that across those departments, there is understanding and those standard operating procedures so that things don't get missed.
1: Is there a significant difference in your experience visiting hospitals in the way unexpected deaths are handled versus euthanasia in the aftercare? Are they very similar or are they very different?
0: As far as what the staff needs to do after death, whether or not a, a pet has walked through the door, you know, DOA, as we say, unfortunately dead or deceased on arrival, or with euthanasia, the steps that need to be taken with the body should be pretty universal. That's with the body. But as far as the level of pre-planning and talking to clients, uh, you know, ahead of time before euthanasia, for example, a lot more opportunities. So there can be more discussion before a euthanasia appointment, for example, about you know who's going to be there for euthanasia, certainly. But then what manner of aftercare are they looking for? Do they want what's called a private cremation where the ashes are returned? Do they want a communal or group cremation where the ashes will be spread? Do they want burial? What manner of memorialization items do they want, including specialty urns, extra paw prints, urn ash jewelry, for example? That's where there can be a lot more pre-planning and discussion with family and those loved ones ahead of time when it's a DOA or an animal dies unexpectedly at the hospital, maybe it's been hospitalized and, you know, unfortunately death comes, that we might be having our clients making more of those decisions in the heat of the moment when there's a lot of emotions involved. And not to say that it still can't be done well and they can't get exactly what they want, but there's just a little more complexity there.
1: When we talked before, and you handed out at, at the beginning here, we talked about possibly that there are people on the team who are not put off by the care that goes into planning the deaths of pets either at home or at the practice that see it as you know, a loving part of end of life with the patients, with the medical team, and with the animals themselves. Are those same people employed in the same way in those sudden emergent situations or unexpected deaths? Would you expect those people also to sweep in? Or does it often feel like there is a kind of a euthanasia group that handles all the pre-planning and that's a different kind of appointment than the people who would come in at the end and say, what do you want us to do with, you know, what should we do with the remains of this animal who died at the practice? Is it usually the same kinds of people or are they oftentimes separate?
0: It's often the same people simply because they gravitate towards the work. Okay. That being said, they might not be available, right? right. They might not. like like the, the one who tends to be present for the euthanasias or likes to have those conversations with the family, the most on maybe a smaller team of four or five people might not be there for the day. So somebody else is going to have to step in and fill that role. But it's important, of course, then that everybody is trained and what are the options and what's going to be the way that this pet is going to be cared for and the family and their bereavement support. All of that, again, just needs to be universal across the team. Clinical practice guidelines, standard operating procedures, this is just what we provide. But some may have to step into that role in a bigger way that maybe it just doesn't suit them quite as well. That being said, too, if we have people on the team that don't like that part of the work quite so much, yeah, it's wise to have a bit of an exploration as to why that is you know what's in their background what is it that we can do to maybe improve education around client communication and bereavement support so that they feel better prepared to step in sometimes at a a moment's notice to care for those clients i mean there's there's so many different situations that present with you know natural death deceased on arrival or dead on arrival, and then euthanasia. So much to teach on, so much to think about. And it really is going to come down to who's the best one to fit that seat, to be in that role, but making sure that everybody that is going to have to step into it feels as comfortable as possible.
1: If there's a person who is positively magical and instinctive or loves that role and loves talking to people and loves the experience of sharing in those powerful emotional moments, and that person's not there. Do those people ever step up and try to, I don't know, mentor other people on what they do and how they do it? Because I have the feeling a lot of times it's people who might be naturally inclined to be people people, and who are open to these intense emotional experiences, and other people are not. Is it like a learnable, teachable thing when that person's not available? Or is it, I mean, it really does everybody else feel like, well, nobody can do it as good as Jack does it. So why bother? (laughs)
0: Yeah, I would hope that anybody would do whatever works placed in front of them to the best of their ability. Sure. But as far as that very empathetic, compassionate person on the team, more than likely they're going to model the right behavior, the right physical body language to the conversations that they're having with clients. And hopefully others will watch that. They'll see that. And even when it comes to euthanasia training, we always advocate that new personnel or those who might not be as skilled in that area do have mentors and they watch and they see what a quality euthanasia is all about i would say the same works with bereavement right in that client communication to emulate the best of the best to see it in action to to debrief on cases to talk about you know some of the things that came up in rounds discussions or whatever and give them a chance to shape their their approach. Those who aren't as, as comfortable can grow and learn and get better, right? Improve with it. But to part of your question is, you know, will they ever get potentially as good as that one person, Jack? Right. You know, it just remains to be seen. I think there's always a potential there, but some people just aren't as much of that people motivated, you know, or people skilled background, so one of the things that we like to look at when we are hiring personnel for end of life work is what makes them tick? Who are they? Who are What are their, their core skills? And a lot of times it happens to be those that are really good at relating with other people. They're naturally empathetic. They love to get the backstory. They love to hear a bit of the history and, and hear about the human animal bond and and they tend to be very organized. They tend to be big in responsibility, right? To follow through with all the directives from the clients and, and what they're hoping for. Yeah. So everybody has those type of skills in them. It's just some will have more than others.
2: Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions, a poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair, help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetxinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two.
1: Is there a sense? So I'm I'm thinking about often the process of grieving and the process of the the feelings people feel about these things will be so very different compared to a DOA, an animal who was alive when it showed up and passed at the hospital, or one that was planned euthanasia. It could. I'm just imagining all the emotions could be so different. Is there a sense at which once the euthanasia is done, everybody feels like, you know, the worst part of this is over and they sort of take their foot off the gas, but there's something in there that, you know, the emotional work is not done. And this person in the moment needs care after the animal has died. And then what is the process afterwards? Could it look like? I know a lot of places don't have access to bereavement groups. And a lot of places, the veterinary practice practice, I think, is to send a very nice card and sometimes a donation in the memory of a pet that passed. And that's sort of like one level of benchmark. So that's kind of two questions. Is there higher levels of things to do after? And is there sort of an easing when there shouldn't be right after the thing has happened that people should still think about what it looks like after the euthanasia has occurred?
0: Yeah, good question. So part of this will depend on how we define euthanasia. okay, And what are those components of it? So I did a little survey quite some time ago with the students and graduates of our CADA program on what exactly entails or is incorporated into the euthanasia appointment. Is it just the medical act itself of ending life or is it to do with once the client arrives and we're doing paperwork and we're hopefully providing pre-euthanasia, sedation, anesthesia, then the medical procedure itself. And then for example, offering privacy afterwards and and memorialization. So all of that, I, I believe goes into euthanasia. It is more than just the act itself, especially when we're talking about companion animal euthanasia, because we have to keep in mind the mindset, the sadness, the emotional toll that is experienced by our clients. So to the first part of the question, yeah, there is generally a shift in energy after the medical act of euthanasia is complete, right? The pet patient has died. There's been such a workup of worry and fear, Anxiety towards, you know, first of all, how smooth is that gonna be, right? Yeah. On the on the pet owner, pet owner's part or the client's part. What's it gonna look like? Is their pet gonna be in pain? And just certainly the worry and the sadness of knowing that this is it, right? That they're forever gonna close that chapter in a book and never have their pet alive again.
1: A lot of future anxiety.
0: Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. So when the euthanasia is complete and the veterinary team has pronounced the pet deceased, there's certainly going to be a flood of emotions that comes out in and in the gravity of the situation but there is also very commonly a sense of relief, right? Because hopefully we're choosing euthanasia for the reason of suffering and that their pet may have been in a lot of pain and discomfort for quite some time that can be physical or emotional. And now that's finally gone, right? That their pet is hopefully at peace. So what we generally do in that moment is if possible is to provide space, right? For the veterinary team to step out of the room, to just let the family be present in the room now with their deceased pet, to see it in this new physical state, to come to terms with their new reality, that now, again, they've closed that chapter in the book and they've just opened up a new one, a new life without their pet. Yeah. So offering that privacy and a little bit of that detachment to step out of that room for a minute is really powerful, really, really powerful. In fact, Keta teaches that, You should always offer privacy before and after death for the family. But if time does not allow for one of those.
1: I was going to ask about that because I'm thinking about these super busy times right now.
0: Yeah, the super busy times where if we just don't have the bandwidth, the the hours in in the day or whatever to allow privacy before and after, or maybe the patient is critical and we have to move forward quick with euthanasia right away, it's important that we at least allow privacy after. And I think everything that I have just said should speak to that with regards to this new normal to now see the body in its deceased state and to not gain necessarily acceptance quite then because that can take some time for the family yeah. to work through their emotions, but to at least see this, this new norm. And that's really important. And then what we do with that time afterwards, if, you know, once the family has had their privacy or maybe even they say, no, we, we're okay, we don't we don't need more time. Then it's the veterinary team's opportunity to offer memorialization, to provide paw prints, maybe collect a little sample of fur, do something that can be done to now have a tribute, right? A, a keepsake for the family oh. to take with them, especially since now, of course, we know they most of them will not take the body with them. Usually the body stays at the hospital for care going forward. Again, that's very normal. I can see that shifting in the near future, but so it's, it's all a matter of just creating that safe space, that ability to grieve the ability to mourn. And the staff is very pivotal in that, right. And to recognize that the family needs this time and that a lot of times the veterinary team needs the time too, because euthanasia, again, very emotional, It's nice for the staff to be able to step out. They might need a a chance to regroup a little bit and just, you know, relax their body and relax their mind for a moment. Just get a little bit of that separation of space before they go back in for memorialization itself. I know there was more to your question, Brendan, but that was, that was hopefully a big part of it. (laughs) I think I asked too many
1: questions all at once. Okay. So, but I came up with a new one. You mentioned memorialization. In looking at things, is it a benefit, do you think, to have a wide, wide menu of possibilities about things that people may choose for what that keepsake might look like or where their animal will be cremated or buried? Lots of options. Or do you find practices have one or two and that's it?
0: So typically right now, practices have one or two options and that's it. Yeah. However that's by choice. That's by design so that they're not taking a lot of their time and resources to go over all of the options with the client. Now, in a recent study that came out in 2020 through the journal Topics in Companion Animal Medicine, written by myself and a few colleagues, we asked pet owners how much information they want on certain things. Like, do they want all the details or maybe they just want some general information or they just need to be told what they need to know. Yeah. When it came to options to memorialize their pet, that was the highest response of wanting to know all the details. Wow. So they had a choice of, you know, do they want all the information about the death and dying process or what happens to their pet after death while it's still at the vet hospital, but before it goes to an aftercare facility, What happens at the aftercare facility? The number one thing they wanted all the details on was options on how to memorialize their pet. Now this creates a bit of a conundrum because veterinary teams for the most part don't have a lot of time. And I've also heard veterinary teams say for years that they don't believe that the clients want all the information that they just want a couple of choices and that's it. But this study proved different and I don't know if your your listeners know this, but I used to run a pet crematory and did for about eight years. And we would find that when families came to our crematories to bring their deceased pet, or maybe they would actually come for me to help with euthanasia, and then we still had the opportunity to look over all the urn options, when they saw the choices, they really gravitated towards that. They wanted to know what was available. And honestly, about 50% of the time, they would choose an urn or something more special than what the the veterinarians would otherwise be providing. So, yes, they do want to know. Now, what's our solution or the balance in all of this? Because a crematory might have 50 different urn options. Right. And. I don't think that's the veterinary team's job to roll through all of that. It's just, it is a lot. I would agree with the vet hospitals that have come to that conclusion. What we do then is a couple of things. We can either, when we've got the chance for pre-planning, such as with pre-planned euthanasias, for example, is to direct clients or pet owners to a website or to some sort of resource where they can look at their choices before they come in for euthanasia. And a lot of them will do that, right? We've got very tech savvy society now that are very, you know, focusing on their phone as long as things are are available to them. And that's a part of the process is to please take a look before you come in so that you'll have the best chance to get exactly what you want to memorialize and, and, and honor your pet. So that's one way to do it. The other way, of course, is to during the appointment itself is to say, here's what we have to offer today. And if you want another, you know, another choice of urn or again, memorialization item or something, then go to the website for the crematory. Here's their information. And you still have some time to choose right? Maybe it's a 24-hour window, maybe it's a two-day or or seven-day window, right, where they can still choose something else so they don't have to feel pressured to do it right then and there. Then a really radical shift and something that would kind of check all of the boxes of the needs is for veterinary hospitals to consider actually partnering deeper with the crematories and having the clients work more with the crematories to get exactly what they need, to basically say that in vet med, we don't have to be everything to everyone. Let's maybe start to leverage our crematory and pet cemetery partners more to share this information with the clients so that they can get everything that they need.
1: Do you have a feel, so obviously you having started a pet crematory, been in charge of one, Again, you're talking about this website, you're talking about all this availability, the synergy between the veterinary medicine and the crematory sounds perfect. I wonder how accessible this is right now across the country, how many practices actually with their current crematory or their current, if they even have access, some there's rare places that have access to pet burial grounds, whatever it happens to be that they do have these websites and they do have people who are ready to take this handoff. And it feels like a full service kind of thing that you would feel good handing over. Is that already there and they're just not taking advantage of it or you're something you hope to see more often?
0: In many communities, this type of handoff ability is already available Okay, where there are very high quality pet aftercare services, whether or not it's standard flame cremation or water-based cremation, which is my company Mm -hmm. that they are well-suited and prepared for clients to be contacting them directly so that the veterinarians can feel confident and the veterinary team can feel confident to say this is who we work with generally or this is who we trust in the community and we can handle all the arrangements for you as best that we can or you are welcome and invited to contact the pet crematory directly and make all of those arrangements. And what the vet hospital can do if a family says they want to, you know make the contact with the crematory, they want to pick out the urn, they want to have more control. The veterinary team or hospital has a couple choices. They can either still hold the deceased pet until the pet crematory can then come and, you know pick up and, yeah. and take them from there. Or the family can just simply say, we're going to take the pet directly to the crematory. And then the veterinary team just kind of helps to prepare the body a little bit for transport out then to the vehicle and and making the drive. So, you know, I've actually heard over the years of veterinary hospitals saying, you can't take your pet. You have to work with the crematory that we work with and those things. And it's really just doesn't have to be that way. In a time where there's not a lot of choice for families being the number one choice is they want to keep their pet alive and healthy and have more years, you know, that's gone. So now what kind of choice and control can we put back into their hands that they can feel really good about knowing that it's super important for them to honor and memorialize the pet in the way that is meaningful so I would love to see our profession as a whole start to put more control into the client's hands and offer more choices in partnership with those local crematories who are doing it so well. Now, on the flip side of that, there are going to be communities that do not necessarily have the highest quality pet crematory, right? Sure. That can be said for any, for any type of service out there that it might not be the best of the best. So then veterinary hospitals have another choice. They can contact that pet crematory and say, this is what we would like to see you grow into and evolve into so that we can trust sending our clients directly to you. Or veterinary hospitals have the choice to start their own pet cremation service, right? And now they can handle everything in house and that they're i guarantee When veterinary hospitals start to offer more internally, because I've seen it time and time again, I'm a a living example of it myself, (laughs) is they tend to offer more choices than to to the client because it's important. And it's important. They've got now the resources for it. They've got all those earned choices. Yeah, it's amazing. So when we know better, we do better. And I think this is an area where we've got a lot of room for improvement.
1: Learn more about euthanasia best practices? Visit the Companion Animal Euthanasia Training Academy at C A E T A And you can reach out to Dr. Kathleen Cooney herself at KathleenCooneyDVM.com. That's Kathleen with a K, Cooney, C O O N E Y. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review on iTunes. Tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. And if you want more, you're in luck. Even more brilliance from Dr. Cooney in the extended version exclusively for our leaders community. Learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you you enjoyed it we would love it if you leave a review on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us want a little more you are in luck an extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community you can learn more at vetxinternational.com and until next time i just want you to know i appreciate you